Well, good morning. It's, it's good to be with you all. I've been tracking with you actually for a while through Paul and as your journey into the PCA uh, here and then now this last year into this building. Uh, it's, it's great to finally actually see you face to face because uh, I have been praying for you, I have been tracking uh, with you uh, through Paul. So I get a real kick out of getting around uh, at, uh, every now and then to see the different uh, congregations uh, and to, to see who's doing what, where kind of thing. My wife and I uh, actually uh, were raised in Michigan, uh, came to the Chicago area so, oh, some 32, 33 years ago uh, to be involved in church planting. Uh, the PCA asked us to come and said, just throw a dart at the map and plant somewhere uh, kind of thing. So we did uh, at that point, and there were at that time seven churches uh, in what was called the Northern Illinois Presbytery, and that covered the northern half of Illinois, uh, northwest Indiana, and all of Wisconsin uh, there. Now we've been able to see enough churches planted uh, that we've split into the three presbyteries, uh, Wisconsin, Chicago Metro, and then the ongoing uh, Northern Illinois, and we now have some 25, 30 churches here in the um, Chicago area. So church planting has pretty much been uh, our life. That's what we came here to be involved uh, in, in doing uh, here. And we've worked together at this all along from when we came to plant to over the last 17 and a half years, my wife and I have served uh, as the church planting coordinator for the PCA. So we've been overseeing uh, or um, spearheading the church planting efforts of our denomination uh, throughout North America. But as of this summer, we're transitioning. Uh, gallivanting all over the country is getting a little old uh, as I get old uh, here. So we're going to focus more now on the Chicago area uh, and the Midwest region uh, in particular. And I've always felt that I've had the best job in the whole world. If for no other reason that I get this, this front row seat to see what God is doing to build his church and to advance his kingdom uh, in this world, whether it's been here in the Midwest region and in our presbytery or uh, Canada, the United States, just to see him building his church, answering prayers, seeing people come to Christ every single day, getting to interact with these church planters and, uh, and others to hear the stories of what God is doing. And I guess the, the theme of this is that Jesus is building his church, just like he said he would do 2,000 years ago, and nothing is stopping him from, from doing that. And so that's what our lives have been involved uh, in doing over these last number of years. We've just been involved in church planting. We live up in the Downers Grove area, Woodridge uh, in particular, and we now attend uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church in uh, Hinsdale, uh, which we also helped uh, start about, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago or something like that uh, when we made this transition. My daughter uh, is Liz. She graduated from uh, Wheaton College. And she's now teaching, I don't think all that far from here, she's a middle school teacher in uh, the Crest Hill community, uh, which probably isn't too very far uh, away. So church planting has been our lives, and part of what I wanted to share with you this morning uh, is a verse that has really been very much characteristic uh, of what we have sought to do, and is the verse that we have set before our denomination as our denominational verse. And I thought you at least ought to be aware of that, uh, if nothing else. Uh, in that regard. So we're going to look at Philippians 1.27, which, like I said, is kind of considered our denominational verse, because this is what we uh, pray for, work towards, 
uh, have been reflective in all the churches and all the presbyteries and in our denomination as a whole and in the church of Jesus Christ. This is what we want to see happen. Uh, so I'm going to read just verse 27, Philippians 1:27. Then, to put it in context for our larger scripture reading, I'll be reading verse 21 through the end of the chapter. So, first, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then, putting it in context, starting with verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Here ends the reading of God's word. Uh, once again, let's bow before God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we focus on this text, we are mindful again of the wonders of your grace towards us in Jesus. We worship you and bless you. We've already lifted up our voices to you in praise and prayer. You are worthy of all thanksgiving, of all honor and glory. But Lord, it is also our desire and need this morning to hear from you, to hear you speak to us. And so Lord, we ask this morning that through your word, through this text, through this verse, that you would do just exactly that. Because, Father, when you speak, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. So speak to us, Lord, this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a great verse. It's packed. But Paul said I only had like an hour and a half or so to, to get this all in. So we're just going to have to cut to the chase uh, with this, this thing. And you see right from the get-go, starting at verse 27, ending at the end of verse 27, it's all about the gospel. It sort of serves as a, like a, a sandwich effect to everything that, that is here. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It is all about the gospel. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures and appeared to Peter, to the disciples, to more than 500 people at one time. This is the good news of the gospel. But it's not just information to hear. That's what, Nathan, you were praying as we started. It's not just information that everybody says, oh, that's just great. What we are told time and time again, especially in Paul's epistles, is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He says this multiple times throughout the epistles to the Corinthians. He says this in Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, there are lots of different kinds of power in this world. Uh, you know, in the business world, you know, money is power. In the world, the halls of government, it's all about assembling for yourself political power. In the world of science, there's nothing greater than nuclear power. We see that it's all about military power. And it's my age, it was power to the people, black power, all sorts of different power movements, this sort of thing. There's lots of different ways to think about power. And all of those things can be good, but in the hands of sinful men, they also can bring great destruction as well. I would set before you this morning that there is no greater power in the universe than the power of the gospel. Because it is only the gospel that has the capacity to save and change the human soul. None of these other things we talked about, as good as they can be, as necessary as they can be for humanity as a whole, money and nuclear power and military power, political power, whatever you can think of, nothing can really affect change other than the gospel itself. It's the only way to make a real difference. And frankly, that is why I'm in the ministry itself. The only reason that I felt myself drawn to and eventually committed myself uh, to having this role is because I believe in the power of the gospel, which is the only source of real hope and real life, of real peace, of real joy, of real change in people's lives. I think of the biblical testimony. You've got the story of Zacchaeus, this corrupt tax collector who was living off of his own people, a Jew, collecting taxes from Jews using the power and authority of Rome to do it. And so the way that it would work, of course, is that Rome would say, we want a certain taxes out of this land of Palestine. And you have the, the, the might of Roman power behind you to collect those taxes. So collect our taxes and whatever else you want to add to that for your own living feel free. And of course, this made tax collectors some of the most wicked, cruel, and despised people on the planet, especially amongst the Jewish folks. This Zacchaeus, a corrupt businessman, uh, a corrupt uh, government official who is just living as a parasite off of his people, 
until he meets Jesus. And he meets Jesus, and his life is turned upside down. He is not only saved, he's changed. And he says from this day forward, I will return threefold, fourfold to everybody I have cheated, and I will give my money to the poor. If we really do want to see change in people's lives, whether it's the business world, government, whatever it might be, it's going to come from people coming to know Christ through the power of the gospel. I think of the Gerasene demoniac, this poor man who is enslaved to all of these different demons, who is running around and uncontrollable, doing destruction to himself and others everywhere he goes until he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, he is set free. And now he has life, and he goes back to his people to tell of the great things that Jesus has done for him. If we want to see people set free from the power of evil in their lives, from addictions and struggles and all the other things that happen in our life, it's only going to happen through the power of the gospel. I think of Paul himself, this religious legalist. This person who would persecute Christians. This person who did all he could to stop Christianity until he met Jesus. And the day he met Jesus, he was not only saved, he was changed. And he became the greatest advocate of the gospel that the world has ever seen. And doing more good than anyone we could possibly think of. I, I think not only the testimony of of scripture, I think of the testimony of history. I think of Augustine, who some you know seventeen hundred years ago, here was a man trying to find love in all the wrong places, trying to find whatever life was all about through drugs, through alcohol, through sex, through whatever he could do. It was a wild and crazy guy, if there ever was one, until he met Jesus. And then he becomes what many would say is the, is the pillar of Christianity after Paul, the greatest apostle who's ever followed in the footsteps uh, of Paul and has shaped Christendom ever since because he met Jesus and he found in Jesus every, the satisfaction of everything he was looking for, every desire, every need, every hope. If we're going to find people set free from that and to find what they're looking for in their lives, it is only going to come through the power of the gospel. Think of John Newton. Oh my goodness. A more cruel, selfish, evil man could there possibly have been as he brought uh, slaves across from Africa to the Caribbean half of whom would die in the, in the wretched conditions of his ships. But he didn't care. He just made his journeys back and forth, collecting his money and, and getting wealthy off, off the slave trade until he met Jesus. And then he is set free. And he becomes one of the greatest advocates of mercy and justice in the world. He pens what might be the greatest hymn in history, Amazing Grace. And he becomes the beloved pastor back in England. This is the power of the gospel to affect real change. I think of my own life, and again, why I'm before you today. Why all this church planting activity? Why in the ministry? Because I believe that the gospel is the only hope for the world. 
and to see people and to hear the stories of folks coming to Christ from all different sorts of backgrounds and walks of life and this sort of thing. That's why we're here. That's what it's ultimately all about. When I've seen the change that God has brought in my own life and, and the hope and the joy, the purpose and the peace that he has given me, a sense of identity and direction in, in life that I never had before, this is what I feel life is all about. And I would hope there's not a soul here today. I don't know where you all are at. This is your first time here, whatever it might be. But I hope nobody will leave here today without bowing the knee to Jesus. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. When God looked at this world and when he looked at you and me and saw what a mess it was in, because of our sin and our selfishness and our stupidity, when he looked at the world and saw it in all of its mess, what did he do? Well, he didn't send a military leader. He didn't send a doctor. He didn't send a teacher. He didn't send a politician, thank heavens. He sent a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His own son who gave himself up for us that we might be forgiven, that we might have life and that we might become restored and become the people we were created to be and now redeemed to be from the get-go. Gradually transformed into his likeness and having life and having it abundantly. And so I pray that there's no one who's here who who will not leave before you yourself have cried out to the Lord from the depths of your own soul asking him to save you and to change you from the inside out. And then, when we have experienced that kind of grace in our lives through the power of the gospel, what does he do with this gospel? He then takes it and says, okay, guys, more than money, more than nuclear power, this is the most potent force in the universe. Now, I'm putting it into your hands. I don't have a plan B. The way this gospel goes forth into your neighborhoods, into your schools, uh, into your workplaces, into your communities, whatever it might be, is going to be through you. And you have now been entrusted with the most potent force in the universe. More than the Tesseract or anything else uh, that is out there, it is the most potent force in the universe. And he's put it into our hands to share with others that they may come to know freedom and life in Christ, that they might become his children, that they might begin to find life as it was intended to be lived in the first place. I am entrusting it to you. And that's part of how we find our answer to, the, to the, the rest of what this text talks about. When he says, okay, not only is it all about the gospel, but I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of or consistent with this gospel. That's what he exhorts them to. Now, there are a lot of ways we can look at that and interpret it. At a minimum, it certainly means uh, how we are going to live in relationship to one another. That we now begin to live, love one another with the same love with which we've been loved. That we begin to extend the same grace to one another that has been extended to us. And that has the power of change. To heal relationships, to heal families, to bring hope and health to relationships 
all over the place, to reconcile people to one another. The power of the gospel is not only to reconcile us to God and to change us, but it now begins to bring change into the world by changing people, changing relationships. We begin to treat one another with the same love and grace that we have been treated. But then it means even more than that, I think. It means taking that and going forth into the world with the gospel. Because it's hard to figure out, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, in a manner consistent with us? Well, just look up at verse 21, and I think we get a good clue for what Paul is saying for himself. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, great. That means fruitful labor for me. But which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Which I didn't know we had a choice, but apparently we do. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. To remain in the flesh or to go to be with Christ, which is way better. But I'm going to stay in the flesh. This is what God has for me now. In other words, to live in a manner consistent with this gospel also means that we are to be sold out for Christ. For me, us to live is Jesus, to die is gain. This is what we're called to. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And for, for Paul, there was no costs. There was no inconveniences with all the things that he went to, all the places he traveled. There was never a sense of, woe is me, look at what I'm doing for Jesus, whatever. He was just excited to be serving his Savior. I mean, one thing you get about Paul is here was someone who was excited to be saved. If you look through all of his epistles, you look through Acts, that's one thing that jumps out to you. Paul never got over how incredible it was to be saved and to have Jesus as his Savior and to know him. I mean, every time he gets an opportunity in Acts, we hear his story all over again uh, as he talks about how Jesus entered into his life and changed him and set him on this path of gospel ministry. You look at the, the first few verses of Ephesians, for example, and he just goes nuts. You know, verses 3 all the way through 14, that's broken up into all of these verses for us, but Paul broke every word of grammar. He would have failed elementary school uh, because he doesn't use any uh, periods or punctuations of any kind. He just gets so carried away. I can't believe that God set me aside before the foundations of the world that he justified me, that he saved me, that he has filled me with the Holy Spirit, that he has given me a hope and a future. I mean, for 14 verses, he just goes on just like a crazy man, just so excited about this. And then the rest of Ephesians continues on from there. That's an effect what he's doing with Philippians. I am so excited. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Everything that I am all about, that's what gets me juiced because it's the hope of the world. And as long as I draw breath, as long as I live in this flesh, that's what I'm all about. And you don't have to be a missionary like Paul. You don't have to be planting churches like I do. Wherever you live or you work, you are his representatives in the workplace, in the school, in the neighborhood to live and to love and to serve and to show grace and to point people to this Jesus. This is what it means and we're called to. Now, it could sound really radical and scary to you to talk like this. As a matter of fact, if you have, unless you really do understand this gospel, have experienced its power, 
all the things that I'm talking to you really sound like radical nonsense. I mean, who would be like this? Like, you know, everything in moderation, right? You know, uh, let's just play it cool and, you know, take it easy. That's not the way Paul looked at it. And no matter what context we're in, we are people who are going to turn the world upside down as Christians were, were, were accused of doing back then. It's foolishness. It's radical unless you understand the gospel. But if you do, that not only are you filled with worship and praise and thanksgiving to your God, but that that spills out into witness to the world. Worship and witness are the same thing. Worship is giving testimony to God's grace to God. Witness is just giving testimony to God's grace to the world. They both kind of flow from the same dynamic that is now going on in our lives. And so we end up taking the posture that uh, Isaiah would take when he had experienced the grace of God all the way back in Isaiah chapter 6 when he would have the, the, the angel from the altar had touched his lips, set him free, cleansed him from his sin. God says, I need a volunteer. And he just says, here am I, Lord. Send me. I don't even know what you're asking for, as you notice in that text. I haven't got a clue who, what you want me to do, but it doesn't matter. I'm your guy, you know, kind of thing. That's the posture that we now have as Christians. So what does that look like? If it's all about the gospel, and what we are called to is this, let our, is, is to live in a manner consistent with the gospel of Christ, what does that actually look like? And that's where he goes on to say, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, Christianity starts by individual Christians being saved and being excited and grateful for that salvation, really understanding what that means. But then Paul is saying, I don't want just individuals who are excited about being Christians. I want to see you, Philippians, or you at Missio Day, or you in Chicago Metro Presbytery, or you in the PCA, or the Church of Jesus Christ. I want to see you coming together. This gospel has a unifying and energizing dynamic to it. And it brings people together under the banner of Jesus. Whatever differences they might have of, of socioeconomic or ethnic or even in some cases some minor points of doctrine, but it brings us together under the banner of Christ so that we are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The gospel has a unifying and energizing impact in the lives of believers. And we see what he's calling them to, particularly because of this verse 27. Now you see, Philippi was a very unique community. It was unlike almost any other place that, that Paul did ministry. First of all, it was not a Jewish community, because we're told in Acts 16 when he showed up in Philippi to proclaim the gospel, as he always did, he'd go first to a synagogue, but there was no synagogue. There weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue in Philippi. It wasn't even really a Greek city, even though it was named for King Philip. It had been usurped by the Romans. The Romans had taken over Philippi, and it was a Roman colony, not just a Roman colony, it was a Roman military colony. Because what had happened on the plains of Philippi just a few years before this, a few years before this, there was the great, one of the greatest climactic battles in history had occurred when Octavian led the forces of Rome against the forces of Anthony and Cleopatra. And they met on the plains of Philippi, and they had this gigantic battle that the Romans won, 
Cleopatra goes back home, lets the snake bite her, she dies, and everything else is history from that point in time. It was one of the great battles. That's what had happened, and the Romans set up shop in this little village of Philippi. That's where their command center was, and when a battle was over to maintain control of the region, they stayed there. They retired there, and it became a Roman military community. And a lot of the terminology, a lot of the imagery that Paul uses here in Philippians generally and in 127 reflects military terminology and imagery such as we have here. And what we have particularly in, in verse 27 is reference to what many uh, might recognize as the Roman phalanx. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he uses the image of the Roman phalanx. Now, if any of you have seen the movie Gladiator, you probably have a pretty decent idea of what I'm talking about here. See, this military strategy had actually been invented years ago by Alexander the Great. It had been refined and perfected under Julius Caesar of Rome. And it became the military strategy that enabled Rome literally to conquer the known world. Nobody could beat it. When they were able to get into a, into a phalanx formations, no one was ever able to beat them. And so what the picture was was this. Is that normally when you had a battle in the, in the ancient world, you, know, you would just get all your people on this side of the valley, and then all the other guys would line up on this side of the valley, and you'd run into the middle of the valley and have a really big fight. And whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest people tended to win that fight. So the Romans changed the rules of the game, though, because everybody would line up just like in old days. They'd line up on both sides of the valley. And so the Romans, you guys get to be the Romans over here. You guys would get over here, and uh, you'll be the, the, the Goths or the Visigoths uh, over here, okay? And so you guys would get over here, and you would line up, but instead of making the big charge, you would go into a marching band routine. The, the drums would begin to beat, the horns would begin to blow, and you guys would be marching in columns, crisscrossing uh, one another. And you guys, the, you, you goths, you, you're watching this across the valley just like, you know, have no clue uh, what's going on. But pretty soon over here, we see that the Romans have, mar have marched themselves into these boxes of men, like hundreds deep, hundreds wide, all across this valley, staggered in different and different contours all across the valley. And so you guys have been watching this, very entertained, but then you say, you know, heck with this, you start charging across the valley, doing what you would always do. And your archers are shooting your arrows like, like floods. But the Romans, before they start to march and before those arrows start to fly, the horns blow and out come all these shields up into the front, all the way around. And they were designed to be head to toe. And then another set of horns blow, and then all in unison, the shields come up over the top. And they were all made to link up with one another. So what have you got? This big human tank, you see. And then out of these little holes in the shields come these long pikes. And so now the Romans start coming across the valley. Chung, chung, chung. They're not charging, they're not running, whatever. They're just marching, you know, with all the metal and their armor and this sort of thing. Chung, chung, chung. Here they come. The Goths. You're just running like crazy people across the valley. All the arrows are being shot at the Romans, and they're just bouncing off their shields. No harm is happening to them whatsoever. And the Roman archers aren't shooting either. You're just marching across the valley. 
pretty soon the, you know, the gods get all mixed up into the, between the, the phalanx and this sort of thing. You're hacking with your, your axes and your spears and your swords and, and everything else and doing virtually no damage whatsoever because then the Roman archers begin to shoot. And they're not hurting their own guys at all, but they're just wiping out all sorts of other people. But then another set of horns blow. When they finish their march, they stop. The shields come down. And the Romans come out fighting. And if you're a goth, Visigoth, a hun, or whatever, all of a sudden you realize no matter where you are on the battlefield, you're surrounded by Romans. They're coming at you from every direction. Your big goth army has been chopped up into little pieces as you've mingled amongst all these Roman phalanxes. And now all the different sides of the Roman phalanxes have got you surrounded and you've been chopped up in little pieces and your army would be obliterated by the Roman soldiers. There, and nobody could figure out a way to beat it. As a matter of fact, we're told by historians as, they, as the Romans marched across Gaul, for example, it's now modern France, uh, they marched across and the enemy would line up, all the, the Franks and the Gauls and this sort of thing would line up, and they'd see them go into their marching band routine, and they'd throw down their weapons and run away. Uh, and they'd just say, you know, now we know what everybody's talking about, I'm out of here, you know, kind of thing. But what was the Roman phalanx all about? It was all about absolute discipline and unity. Everybody had to fight at the same time. You had to listen to the horns. You had to follow the drums, this sort of thing. Otherwise, if you decided because all these scary people with long hair and blue faces were running across the valley at you and screaming at the top of their lungs and you got scared and you decided you just kind of come out and start fighting, well, that whole part of your Roman army could become easily overwhelmed because you were only a few hundred people in a box. And if you tried to do it all by yourself, you could be in real trouble. You had to do it in unison. You literally had to fight side by side. You could not break rank. You literally had to have each other's back. That's what it was all about. And the Romans were not able to be defeated when they did, did that. Do you see the imagery that Paul is using here to the Philippians Christians and to the church as a whole? He's saying, listen, guys, I do want to see you excited about being saved, excited about Jesus, and having this power of the gospel. I've given it to you. And I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel, which as you extend love to one another, the same love which you've been loved, the same grace that you've been extended, I want you now to come together. I want you to find ways to come together to advance this gospel in the world. And when you do it together, Nobody can stop you. Nobody can beat you because I'm going before you. And so what, what we see here is he goes on and says in verse uh, 28 that you're not frightened in anything by your opposition. Not frightened in it. See, the challenges of the mission field are not the mission field. The challenge of the mission field is whether Christians will work together or not. Side by side. Because when you do, you say nothing's going to be able to stop you. The gates of hell won't be able to stop you. Because I go before you. And you have the power of the gospel. And it united around that, nothing can stop you. And so, you know, when I, I get all over the country, and it's amazing to me, as I talk to people, whether it's Canada, California, New England, whatever, people always feel like their area is the hardest place to plant churches. 
no matter what it is or where I go. It's the hardest place. New England, it's all burned over. You know, Christianity is long gone. People are hardened to it. Can't, you know, plant churches or reach people with the gospel. California, everybody's, you know, fruits and nuts. Nobody can make sense of anything uh, there. You can't get even on a common ground with people. It's hard to plant churches. Canada, they rejected Christianity and the gospel years ago. Uh, well, Mormon Utah is pretty, is pretty hard. Uh, I, I will admit that. That's a hard place to plant churches. Or in the South, you know, I don't know if anybody's here from the South, and they say, you know, everybody thinks they're a Christian, but they're not, so you have to get them unsaved before you can get them saved. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. You see, the, the point of the matter is it isn't your mission field. As diverse or challenging as it might be, the, the, the issue is whether the Christians will seize them, take up the mantle of the gospel and find ways to do it together. And that's why church membership is important. Because it, we're coming together uh, for these ends. This is why being a part of a presbytery or part of a denomination or, or part of the church of Jesus is important. That's why we have connection points and why we try to serve together in multiple ways. There are three reasons why we have church membership, why we have presbytery membership and those sorts of things. One is for mutual care and support. That we're supposed to be there for each other when we go through hard times. And I've seen that happen in our presbytery over and over again. It's supposed to happen in local churches and presbyteries and denomination. We're also... Uh, committed to, to providing oversight and accountability to one another. Because we're not free to do our own thing, but under the, under the word of God. And we want to hold ourselves accountable to what the scriptures say and our beliefs and our behavior. But we are also committed, also covenanted together to cooperate in mission. To combine, find ways to combine our time, our energy, and our resources. Whether it's a local body of believers whether it's a regional presbytery, whether it's a denomination, whether it's the church of Jesus Christ itself, this is what we're supposed to be. These are the dynamics that are supposed to reflect our life together. And so I hope that as, we, as you think about what your future is and who you are even sitting here today, first of all, that no one will leave without first giving your life to Jesus because he is the only hope for the world. And he's the only hope for your life. But I also pray that you will be a people who really are excited about being saved. That you have the wonder and the joy of your salvation growing in you more and more every day. And that that translates not only into enthusiastic living for Christ, for me to live as Christ and I as gain, but you are always looking to find ways to strive side by side to see this gospel go forth in this community and in this city, greater city of Chicago, the Midwest region, the United States, and the world. That's what we are all about. And that's when I pray for you all, when I pray for the churches of our Presbytery and others, I just use this as the guideline. This is what we pray for. This is what we long to see happen. May it increasingly be reflected, reflected in you all, the body of Christ known as Missio Dei. Let's pray.